You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. Yeah, so welcome. A couple of quick housekeeping things on here which first is that we are on a lot of platforms. You can find us at TuneIn, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on uh, we're on Alexa smart speakers, and I believe the Google Play and Sonos smart speakers. Did you mention and, Spotify? And we're on Spotify, thank you. So all over the place, you can find us there. Subscribe, that way you don't miss any episodes. Uh, makes us look good when you subscribe, so all the things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are revamping our Patreon. So head over there and check out the new levels, the new perks, the new all the stuff that you get at patreon.com slash podcast, and you can find out what's going on there. Yeah, super cheap. Very easy to get some behind the scenes, what's going on, the uncut episodes and such. It depends on how much you want to support. It's a total values-based model. Um, it helps us out. Perfect. All right, let's go ahead and without further ado, jump into this episode, and we need to begin with an important disclaimer, which is that we are going to be talking about uh, conception and what goes on during gestation in pregnancy in humans, and we are two white dudes talking about this, yep. and we get, we get that we're coming from that perspective and that we do not have the final say or the experience to really weigh in on what it's like or... Uh, who where responsibility lies, and that's that's not the intention of this episode. So we, you know, feel free to let us know. We we really are not intending to cross any boundaries that have anything to do with what is the experience is like for someone who is in a position to make that choice or have that happen to them or whatever the situation is. We're not commenting on that, or at least we're not trying to. The intention of this is simply to describe the process by which conception and pregnancy occurs, because it's actually really interesting. And there's a lot of stuff in here that we feel is, is pretty neutral, because there's just there's a series of steps that take place. And so that's, that's what we want to talk about. Yeah. And so this will be the first of many episodes on this. We're just going to spread them out over time, because we do not want to turn into... Uh, the child development podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll do a couple back-to-back here. We'll talk about conception and then infancy and then want to take a break from this and come back a little bit later and get into um, sort of early childhood and adolescence stuff and then maybe take a break and come back for adult and senior golden years stuff. But we're going to try and, as, as Ryan said, spread them around a little bit. All right. So the starting point would be why are we even interested in this in the first place? You mentioned that there's a lot of cool stuff that goes on, especially really early in us becoming human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's useful to understand how we begin to learn and the conditions that create who we are in the extent to which they're present by watching how psychology develops as the body develops. There's a lot of circumstances that influence the biology, which also then influence the psychological development to an extent. Now, obviously, there's not going to be a lot of those those experiences that will necessarily shape your preferences and everything right away. But it, there is still something interesting that happens in, in during this gestation process. Another reason that it's fun to talk about this is that, you know, kids are cute and they're fun little humans that are, they're interesting to be around and they're fun to talk about. And it's just, they're, 
I don't know. It's fun to be around kids. So it's, we, you know, we worked with kids. Yeah. You can see day to day, just like how much is developing and changing during certain parts of their life. So it's really cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Like when you, especially when you see babies and you, and you're seeing them pick up on social cues and learning the world around them, it's, it's really fascinating. And obviously you don't get to see much of that overtly when it, during pregnancy, but, um, still a lot of interesting things happening. And, and that's part of the reason that I wanted to tackle child development is because it, they're fun, you know, kids are fun. And then finally, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this is that during gestation, this is a remarkably challenging and sometimes perilous time for babies. And as we'll see as we discuss more about this, it's it's kind of surprising that people are as prolific reproducers as we are in the world because of how much has to go right for a pregnancy to even occur and, and follow through all of the way. And, and it does, obviously, a significant chunk of the time, which sort of indicates that we must be really good at this reproducing thing and doing it often enough that we overcome those hurdles. <laughs> so there's so many interrelated parts that are connecting to each other, too. I don't think we'll ever have those mapped out, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's just there's un- so much to know. Just mind blowing how many different things are coming together and like changing. And it's just such a dynamic process. Right. So in this episode today, we're going to try and tackle the discussion a little bit of just what is development and um, for humans specifically, what happens during gestation and how do those experiences that occur for the baby during pregnancy affect psychological development to some extent. And consider this your warning that there's going to be a lot of discussion about specific parts of the human reproductive system. We will be talking about penises and vaginas. Right. Yeah. So it's just, there are just terms and vocabulary that are around the reproduction. And there's, as always, we keep it family friendly. There's no swearing. But if you are sensitive to hearing about those things or you don't want people to hear those words or whatever, then you might consider skipping this one. Yeah. Click out or put on some headphones. (laughs) (laughs) You might have headphones on already. Maybe change to some music or something. But hopefully, you know, like I said, we're going to keep this as family friendly as we can. It, It should be pretty straightforward. It's just that when we're talking about what happens during pregnancy, there are certain parts of this involved that that are kind of hard to ignore. So, all right, ready to dive in? Yes. So let's start with just how it works. There are, my understanding, this generally organized system of three different three-month phases. Yeah. And these are generally referred to as trimesters. And these phases are sort of called phases. You could talk about them as these stages, if you will, because A, it makes it easy to refer to those major events that are likely to occur during those stages. And B, although there aren't three distinct shifts that happen during those stages, there are some significant milestones that can be identified during those phases that are sort of a way to refer to this is where you're at Oh, this is where the in, the baby is at along its development um, during gestation. And these trimesters can have subcategories of phases as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just depends on how you want to try and describe it because really it's just it's this gradual dynamic process. Sometimes it's faster, sometimes it's slower. A lot of changes are happening, some of them simultaneously and some of them at different paces. And there could be even more or fewer phases. And so... There's just there's a lot of ways to try and describe what's happening. And so there's some somewhat arbitrary but useful decisions made about how to categorize the steps of 
life as it as it happens during this uh, during this process. So like trimester one, sick and tired. Trimester two, ah, baby kicks. And trimester three, get this baby out. <laughs> yep. So you're talking about <laughs> those. Are, those are the trimesters. <laughs> yeah, they're actually just referred to as first, second, and third trimesters. But I like that joke. So, <laughs> so okay. there's these alternative periods as well. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, I mean, instead of referring to it as trimesters, you could say that there's a germinal period, an embryonic period, and a fetal period. And the germinal period is from the initial conception to two weeks along. The embryonic period is three weeks from conception to eight weeks. And then the fetal period is the ninth week throughout the rest of the pregnancy, which will usually go to about 38 to 41 weeks for most people. And again, we're not making a comment about whether these are some people have premature births or they go a little bit longer than that. Just that that's what the average tends to be for most people. All right. So there is an enormous amount of change during this conception and germinal period. So let's jump into that a little bit more. Yeah. And actually, this might be a good time to point out a little bit of what development means, because there is this idea that development is simply the passage of time and that development will simply occur as long as time passes. And while development does happen in time, as do all things, development really happens because there are a series of interrelated events that are the system changing and and growing and, and moving and shifting. And I mean, really changing is the best word because some things will grow and some things will actually shrink. And there's just a lot that happens. Some things will be really necessary at first and later become unnecessary. And then some things will like, that's just part of it is that there's this change and it's, the change does happen in time, but it happens because of all of these factors that are combined, such as it has the right nutrients and it has a, a certain kind of environment is going to facilitate certain types of change that will happen at a certain pace or will slow it down or, you know, and not, not to say that any of that's good or bad. It's just that those are factors that are relevant to the pace at which that ta- that change occurs. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said it's all interrelated in a very dynamic process is yes. this stuff is just kind of reacting and working next to and with each other constantly. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So Passing by the interesting and complicated nature of ovulation in and of itself, we're going to skip all of that, no talk of that, suffice it to say that most of the time an ovary will release a single egg rather than there being a whole bunch of releases, although that can happen. Just, again, on average, generally speaking, an ovary will release a single egg. This is called an ovum. This is the female gamete. Okay, or the gamete that's produced by females. It will slowly make its way from the ovary down a fallopian tube until it reaches the uterus. And if it reaches the, re- the uterus and it has not been fertilized, then it'll simply be excreted from the body. Okay. So assuming it has been fertilized by a sperm or a spermatozoa or a male gamete, the conception will usually begin in the fallopian tube. Right. And so now once this egg is fertilized with a sperm, this is now called a zygote. Uh, A zygote is initially not attached to anything. It's not attached to the uterus at first. So because it's not attached, it doesn't receive any additional energy or nutrients while it's on its journey, while it's traveling. It does, however, begin to divide into new cells as it continues to travel down the fallopian tube. And then it becomes, as it, as it divides into those, this now having many more cells, it is now a blastocyst. 
And a blastocyst has two layers of cells. There's the inner cell mass, also called the ICM, which will later become the embryo. And then there's the outer layer called the trophoblast, which will provide nutrients to the embryo and will eventually turn into a portion, a significant portion of the placenta that will again provide nutrients to the, to the embryo, which will later become a fetus. All right. So then during this phase, the egg must implant in the uterus. So this is arguably the most dangerous time for the potential future baby in the entire process. And this because many things can go and do go wrong. It's estimated that 60% of zygotes fail to grow or they fail to implant properly and do not survive the first two weeks. This is at no fault of the mother's behavior in any way and happens to almost everyone. That is a huge amount of pregnancies um, and before they really get underway. And most people don't even know that they were pregnant when this happens. Yeah. And again, just pointing out really clearly that this is just a thing that happens. It's not affected by anything that anybody does. Just a part of the process is that sometimes the zygote fails to occur the way that it would need to occur in order to continue to develop. And again, this is in the first couple of weeks. So most people have no idea that any of this is taking place. And even if they were planning to be pregnant and they were plan they were taking all of the right steps, this could still happen to anyone. It's just a part of this process because it's it's difficult to get it right most of the time. And not not for people. It's difficult just for nature, I guess, to get it right. Um, and it's just, you know, those things happen. But 60% seems like a pretty a pretty fair chunk. And that's part of what we were saying earlier that it's kind of amazing we're as successful as we are given how many things can interrupt this process and prevent it from following through all the way. Yeah, there's so many things that can go wrong all the time. And I'm referring to the collective we as human beings, not yes. Ryan, and, Ryan and me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. So assuming the zygote is able to implant properly, or else there'd really be nothing left for us to discuss in this episode, the next stage is called the embryonic stage. And this lasts from uh, the third week through the eighth week, again, generally speaking. These are sort of arbitrary distinctions, but the reason that this one is classified as the embryonic stage it's, is because at this point, the blastocyst starts to receive nutrients from the placenta which is getting nutrients from whatever the mother is consuming whatever the you know the person who's carrying the child is consuming through the attachment because the attachment forms into an embryo hence the name of the stage the embryonic stage when it attaches to the wall of the uterus okay and the cells that are part of this embryo they have this quote unquote programming from the genes and which is to say that the genes have certain things that they're going to do. They code for amino acid sequences of proteins, and those proteins do very specific things most of the time, and that those begin to form into masses that will make up the organism. So they form from the head down. So the head comes first, while also forming the beginnings of the central nervous system. To way oversimplify this process, basically the body spreads out from the brain. Over the next six weeks or so, the cells are just amassing to form all the relevant and sometimes irrelevant pieces of the human being. It does not have any identifiable sex characteristics just yet. Right. During this stage, it's just beginning to form a human shape is all it's really doing yet. So that embryo, once attached to the uterus, is immediately susceptible to all the things that go into the uh, the environment of the uterus and the placenta. Okay, So anything that's consumed, anything that's exposed to, that can include things like drugs and alcohol and smoking and, and caffeine and all that sort of stuff. So 
all the things that are those environmental circumstances that could harm in, uh, this thing while it's in development are likely going to happen during the stage. Again, not trying to point fingers at, at anybody for anything that they've done, just that these things can't really affect it while it's still traveling down the fallopian tube. It has to actually be attached in order for it to start receiving things from the sort of external environment for the most part. I mean, there may be some other reason that this would happen, but generally speaking, that's that's the only way that it can really happen. There is this myth that I've heard that uh, a little alcohol during pregnancy is unlikely to hurt a developing child. And just to clarify this, it's really not that well understood why some babies seem to be unharmed by alcohol and some t seem to be devastatingly altered during their development by even small amounts of alcohol. It's, it's just not really known for whom that's going to be the case and for whom it's not. It's just generally that it's certain that if there's no alcohol, then the alcohol can't damage it. And that's why the recommendation is that you just shouldn't consume any alcohol. There are people who have, and then things turned out fine. But it's not really that well understood how it comes to be the case that for some people, it seems to be more effective than others. And so that's why the recommendation is just not to consume any. Because at that point, we're 100% sure that it's not going to affect the baby if it's not consumed, right? Yeah. That's, that's basically the best take home there. Stack the deck in your favor. Just don't do it ever. So this takes us to the fetal stage, which lasts from weeks nine to the rest of pregnancy. And it's where all the other major steps of development begin to occur. This is the point at which a baby is now considered a fetus. Yep. And so if for that fetus, the 23rd chromosomes are XY, then the SRY gene um, on the Y gene or the SRY, whatever it is, on the Y gene, that uh, will begin to form male organs and then it will get bathed in testosterone. Otherwise, it will form female organs. It has to actually have that catalyst, which is to say, you're getting testosterone now or else it will turn in, uh, out to be female. And then at this point, this is where secondary sex characteristics begin to form, which is to say it will either begin to form a penis or a vagina for most people. Now, there are certain there is something called intersex, which we've mentioned a long time ago when we talked about gender and sexuality, which is where it will form parts of both and it can form only somewhat one of one or the other. So you can imagine that because so much happens during this step and during all of the development, really, as things are changing, it's just going to be different for every single individual. Some of them they'll have very clearly pronounced, some of them less so. And everybody just turns out a little bit differently depending on the, on whatever the genes are coding for. And, and there's really nothing you can do about it. So <laughs> it's, that's just all there is to it. But for most people, you're going to have, it's going to have either those characteristics of, of, of a penis or a vagina and somewhere in between those things. Now, this is also where the heartbeat begins to strengthen and fine details form. So hair, fingernails. Yes, babies have fingernails. Little weird and scary. That's right? scary. Like they're in there with fingernails. <laughs> but this is also where the brain is undergoing massive development during this time, like massive, all capitals, massive. And as far as we know, we have the most complex brains of any animal out there. Especially the prefrontal cortex develops significantly uh, more than it seems to do in most other animals. And that's not to belittle the value of life in other creatures, just to say that that seems to be what happens with human beings. All reptilians just got pissed at us listening to this. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, reptilians. I didn't know you were podcast listeners. <laughs> Things you know. All right. 
as with the first trimester, the second trimester is still very dangerous for the fetus, at least in terms of the whole process can be very dangerous. And of course, it can go very smoothly, too. I don't want to undercut the fact that most that many people are able to go through this process without doing any without experiencing any problems. And and then many people also um, struggle or, or have to face a lot of things around this. Again, don't want to comment on anyone's experience just to say that when we're speaking with respect to the child development, the fetus specifically, the second trimester is a, t a tumultuous time, or at least it can be. And uh, so remember we said that there is an estimated 60% of pregnancies that will terminate during the germinal stage. About 20% of those that do make it to that embryonic stage will also spontaneously um, abort, which is called a miscarriage, again, during this fetal stage. And this is really due primarily to chromosomal abnormalities. Again, nothing that anybody did wrong. It's just that it's difficult for this process to take place all the way for a lot of, a lot of people. And we don't know what it's like to miscarry. Never going to know what it's like. Don't want to even try and speculate what it might be like. Just that that's a thing that does happen. The estimated rate of this is about 20%. The 20% of those that make it to the embryonic stage will will have that miscarriage. And then um, an additional 5% of those that make it to the fetal stage will either miscarry or be stillborn, which is to say born not alive. And so all in all, if you take all of those percentages together, only about 31% or less of pregnancies will actually result in a living human child. Again, so it's actually pretty, again, very surprising that we're able to have children at as successfully as we are. And a lot of that we can thank um, you know, modern medicine and uh, just learning a lot more about this process and the system that has helped allow people to be more successful with it. Yeah. That's a crazy percentage, man. 31% is it? Yeah. Surprising. Um, I, I was surprised when I learned that the first time that that's, it was only that high. So to continue on at 22 weeks, a fetus is considered viable. That's in air quotes, meaning that if a baby is born this early, it could potentially survive and continue to develop. So scientists have actually been trying to push this window to where if someone born a child earlier than this, that they could try to still keep that child alive. Yeah. And it's kind of a legal thing. Um, this is where some of the laws around abortion, and we're not getting it all into the politics of that but just that some of the laws have been based on this idea of viability and that in the interest of helping women have children, scientists specifically have been trying to work on finding ways to facilitate, even if a child is born that premature, that they can still make it. And as far as I last heard, they are making incremental gains on that front. So that's something that people can be hopeful for. Modern medicine. Okay. So as we were saying, once the brain develops, it's believed that the relationship between the mother and the fetus also really begins to develop. I'm sure that a lot of people build a relationship much sooner than that. Um, that's just what is generally said by child development psychologists is that that's when that relationship really strengthens is that once the the brain is started to form quite a bit more. Um, the baby can hear. It can control its movements. It feels pressure and touches on the abdomen. Um, it eats when it when its mother eats, and it hopefully sleeps when its mother sleeps. Many of them do not, unfortunately, um, but sometimes they do. And so you, it, it can experience many of the same things that the mother experiences 
and therefore it begins to learn certain patterns of behavior a little bit. And the mother also will become increasingly aware of oftentimes, um, not, not always. So again, like if this isn't something that happened, that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It's just that generally what's said is that mothers will report that they become increasingly aware of being synchronized with the behavior and the patterns of behavior of their baby. Sometimes they never feel that way. And that's totally okay. Um, just really speaking to the fact that what's going on at this stage is that because the baby has developed the organs to sense the world to a limited extent. Obviously, it can't see a lot of what's going on around it or or hear anything very clearly. All of those things are shaping a lot of this experience because as those sensory organs are stimulated, so too are the parts of the brain that interact with those sensory organs. And so it starts to develop a, a learning for how to tell certain types of stimulation apart from others. Does that make sense? Yeah. So during this third trimester, which is about six months or 24 to 26 weeks, the eyes begin to open. And so the baby starts to be sensitive to light and dark. The baby gains a lot of its weight and a tremendous amount of the brain develops, which is part of the reason why it is so dangerous to be born early. The bones in the nervous system finish forming, although they will, of course, keep growing and the baby will begin to practice breathing. Yep. So. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's not much else to say. I mean, you're. It is that part of the reason that premature births have been something that we've only recently been able to provide an environment that would really facilitate successful transition into normal development is because so much brain development happens during that last trimester. And if a baby is born before that trimester, they have a lot of brain development to do still. So they've got to try and simulate the best that they can all of the things that would occur during that pregnancy. So they really try and keep the baby warm and comfortable and provide all, all what, what is necessary uh, to make it. And again, no fault of anybody's premature births are very hard to predict. They are hard to, to do anything about. Um, it's just really just speaking from the perspective of this is what happens when a premature birth occurs. Does it make sense? Yes. hundred percent. Cool. So let's jump into complications. Yeah, so just some things to be aware of, I guess, or just, I mean, really, just talking about what can occur during pregnancy. Um, There are these things called teratogens. I've also heard it pronounced teratogens um, and teratogens, however you want to say it, I guess. But teratogens is the way I feel most comfortable saying it, and it sounds right to my English Western-speaking ears. Teratogens seems like uh, some sort of mix of a Trojan and something. (laughs) I mean, that wouldn't be out of character for what we're about to talk about. I imagine warriors and all these other things. There you go. Uh, and then there's something called uh, benafogens, which is sort of the reverse of that. But So teratogens or teratogens are essentially just harmful conditions to the baby. And really, this consists of three major categories. You have illness, such as getting a virus or a flu. There are chemicals, such as drugs, alcohol, caffeine, some medications, maybe radiation, I don't know, the things that you might be exposed to, and then physical damage, such as physical trauma, if the mother is injured or hurt in some way, right? Yes. And now, at this point, it's important to bring up the fetal alcohol syndrome deserves its own treatment. So that should be its own whole episode that we do on this podcast. Yeah. Um, but this would be an example of a ter- teratogen. That's how I like to say it. 
teratogen. This results in physical malformations as well as a range from subtle to profound neural malformations, which are permanent, non-reversible, and extremely difficult to remediate. There are some people who, again, we're not going to really get into this, but there are some people who are born with, with very mild fetal alcohol syndrome and go on to live mostly normal lives. And so it's just... You just don't. You just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen yeah. for most people. I worked with a child years ago that was in like the first or second grade, and speech was very um, impeded. But otherwise, uh, there was a lot of the developmental markers and milestones at the time were on point. Yeah, I've met some people who seemed to display physical characteristics that are common to fetal alcohol syndrome and, and they did have fetal alcohol syndrome, but otherwise all their milestones were on point. And I've met some individuals who had almost no physical characteristics of fetal alcohol syndrome, but all of the neurological uh, symptoms were very yeah. clearly identified and um, and hit very few of the developmental milestones that were normal for uh, the age at which this, this individual was progressing. It's so fascinating, like how just the range of, of differences when you get into something like this, like one of these syndromes. Yeah, and again, it's just... There is a lot that's understood and still so much that's not understood about how and why it occurs and when it's likely to affect it in a very particular way. I don't know. It's just it's, it's a very complicated diagnosis. So over-the-counter drugs and herbs. Herbs. <laughs> Was that just for our British friends? Jesus. Herbs. <laughs> and herbs um, have not actually been systematically studied for their possible effects on fetal development. Um, so herbs are drugs too, albeit uncontrolled drugs. Right. A lot of people will want to take herbs and things, and it's not to say that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that these these do have medicinal properties, as most people who actually take them are well aware. And so the dosing can become very tricky because it hasn't really been well studied or controlled. So, you know, if if people are very keenly aware of what the appropriate doses are, then then you know what to take. But sometimes if you're taking it just to take it and you're not really sure, then it's it's not I don't I don't think there's any really clear recommendations for a lot of these. So, it's just, you know, about knowing that herbs are drugs and just that they're they're a thing that are out there and not all over-the-counter medications have been evaluated to really see uh, the extent to which they are safe or can have some kind of effect on pregnancy. I mean, a lot of them have, but there are also some that haven't yet. And that includes herbs. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. So um, there's a few other diseases that are just useful to know about. Um, toxoplasmosis is a disease caused by the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, or gondi maybe, or gondi. Uh, this is found in undercooked meat. Um, it's found in soil contaminated with cat feces. It can, for during development, it can cause blindness. It can cause uh, mental retardation, deafness, and sometimes, under certain circumstances, it can even result in death. And then um, cytomegalovirus is uh, the herpes virus transmitted at various times before and even after birth. And this can result in neurological impairments, growth, and then problems with um, teeth, with vision development, and with hearing problems. Uh, rubella is a viral infection, and this is preventable by vaccine, but otherwise has no treatment. 
uh, this can result in slowed down. And I'm using the word retarded, but I'm, it's retarded as in like a retardant, something that slows something down. Um, retarded growth, which is to say growth that is slowed down. Um, hearing damage, vision damage, cardiovascular problems, and some neurological damage. And this can actually occur before um, the, the mother even knows that she's pregnant. So herpes, next one, uh, can cause encephalitis, rashes, eye problems, cutaneous lesions. Um, and can be prevented with safe sex practices. Um, it can also be treated with, how do you pronounce that, Abraham? I think it's uh, a cyclover. A cyclover is what a, I was going to say, a too. a cyclover, maybe. Yeah. All right. And then Zika, which is transmitted by mosquitoes. Relatively mild fever symptoms can occur in adults and can cause microcephaly during prenatal development. All right, so that is all of the potential uh, teratogens. Is that correct? That's some of the potential teratogens. Those are some Sorry. of the major ones. <laughs> yes. That's why I included them. Uh, some, uh, yeah, all the major ones on our list. Sorry, yeah. that is not to say that that is all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and of course there are the, as I mentioned before, the benafogens, and these are helpful things. These are things that are going to facilitate a healthy, regular developmental process, um, and this largely includes... Um, uh, advice around like nutrition and stuff. But the two ones we're going to focus on here are um, folic acid and iron. Um, so folic acid is a B vitamin that facilitates the development of red blood cells and has been shown by, I mean, just tons of research to help prevent birth defects if taken daily during pregnancy. Uh, the recommended dose is approximately 400 micrograms per day. And research has even shown that birth defects can be further reduced by as much as 50%, according to the CDC, if the uh, if the person who is planning on becoming pregnant begins taking folic acid for a year before getting pregnant, if yeah, okay. A careful note on that, just just though, is that um, this this is not an example of like more is better. It's best to take the recommended dosage. This is a vitamin, and vitamins ha have are good for us at certain dosages and not good for us at in major excesses of those dosages. Yeah, they have a limit. <laughs> yeah. Um. 50% is an astounding percentage, man. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So That's crazy. I mean, that's the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. It's possible. I didn't look into other countries to see if they had reported similar findings. That was what I found for the United States. All right. That gets us uh, into the behavioral stuff. Yeah. So we talked about when we did an episode on genetics a long time ago, there was a researcher in, I want to say the 30s and 40s. Is that about right? Yeah, and work was published all the way up until, I think, 67-ish. Yeah, I thought it was in the late 60s yeah. also. So anyway, his name was um, Guo. Oh, you want to say his name? Yeah, Zingyang Guo. Um, I believe I've been pronouncing that correctly for the last like five or six <laughs> years. I've been really, yeah. really reading his work. He has a fantastic summary of his book. It's, it's dated, but it is so unbelievably relevant to today. It is it's unbelievable. It's really well written. Yeah, very well written. Um, an extreme amount of research dedication was put into that. It's fascinating just how much he had to work to be able to continue his research and the scale of the research that he was doing. Um, yeah. Just like leagues ahead of his time, I would like I don't know like where he was getting this these ideas from, um, where this was coming from because there's literally things uh, that I've seen posted on scientific updates in the last five years where it's like yeah Guo did that, <laughs> he yeah. did that in the 30s and 40s. 
Yeah, and he he wasn't actually studying child development, but what he was doing was investigating development during gestation, and he was primarily looking at eggs of birds. But he developed this method to actually watch how they develop while they're in their egg and how he could manipulate the conditions such that he could influence their development in certain ways. And what he really discovered was that and this might come as a surprise or not to many people. This might sound like common sense to a lot of people, but that if you affect the development such that it alters the physical conditions of the organism as it's gestating, as it's developing in, in utero and or in, in the egg in this case, that that will largely affect the organism when it's born. And it will change certain things like what it's susceptible to, what it's likely to pursue, what kind of um, patterns it's likely to um, it, to engage in, and that those were all things that could be pretty consistently predicted by looking at the how the development works. And I think this is really closely related to when we talk about because there are all of these experiences that happen to an infant in the in the womb that again it's stimulating. Uh, once once it has the sensory organs to be receptive to external stimulation, it starts learning from that stimulation. It starts interacting with its world in such a way that that is going to be part of its developmental history, even mild things. And it's not like it's going to remember what it was like to be in the womb necessarily, but it will have had the experience of receiving input auditorily or visually or kinesthetically or whatever it is doing that will it then shapes its muscles and it shapes how it's how much of its brain is being used and needs yes. to be used and how many of the neurotransmitters are being produced because of that stimulation there's so much in this dynamic process that occurs that are going to be relevant to when it's born yeah all of these things are compounding off of each other so just to kind of summarize where he ended up is he he had these five groups of determining factors. They're the morphological factors, which is the way in which your body shapes the form that you have. I think it's the easiest way to think about it. So like yeah. if I stood on top of a building and tried to jump off like Batman and like flap my wings like a bird, like I'm not going to I'm not going to fly. That's just not going to happen. Um, I'm going to fall straight down because the morphology of my body. The next one was the biophysical and biochemical factors, which is just lumping in all the different complexities of those levels. I don't begin to understand biology and uh, biochemistry whatsoever. Um, and then the other three are pretty interesting and fall within this behavioral uh, purview that we all study quite a bit on this podcast. And that is the stimulating objects like Abraham was just describing, and then your developmental history and your context, which is largely what you're describing as well. One interesting thing that he found was just the role that context played. Um, it was unreal. He was be able. He would be able to experimentally show that context has a huge impact on what people thought was specifically something that was like only nature in that nature versus nurture debate, right? Right. He would show that it is uh, sometimes completely flip that. So people thought that it was just something that was purely like nature. He'd be like, no, it's completely nurture um, because of what you were talking about earlier, Abraham. Well, I think I want to be careful to say that there's really nothing that's completely anything. It's always going to be what what the the major mistake that has been made in a lot of psychology, which Guo was really good about not making, was exactly the idea that people were trying to relegate the cause to one source of uh, of variables. And what Guo really showed was that it's 100% everything. Yes, you've got like uh, you have 100% 
the the environment is 100% responsible for development, the context, the biology is 100% um, the responsible for the development, that the morphological features are 100% responsible because all of those things are irrelevant and they all occur together. And it's challenging because it's so dynamic. You know, you have all those factors playing together yeah. and it's hard. You want to isolate one variable and say what's going on, but you've got tons of them. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clearing, clearing that up for me. Um, I was thinking of like when I said that, I was thinking of people would be like, oh, that's just how he's born. That's how his brain is. Things like that. Oh, yeah. And Guo Gu would flip that. He'd be like, no, it's not that one thing. It's actually all of these things. And here's your research line to look at that sort of stuff. You know, right. it, it's more like a yes. And it's also all because the context, it's all because the brain, it's all because the context, it's all because the genes, it's all because the stimulating object, it's all of it. And like all of that stuff is so critically important. And that's what's so interesting about this process is that even though they don't necessarily, again, we don't necessarily have a conscious memory of what it's like to, to be developing as, as a zygote and then as a fetus, where nevertheless, once we have that brain and we have a way to interact with our environment, we immediately start learning a little bit. And all of those things shape a little bit the things we're going to know. And we, unfortunately, we can't just say that if you do X, Y, and Z, then your baby will come out playing cello perfectly or something, or will come out, you know, we, we unfortunately, we can't, we can't prescribe it exactly. The extent to which we know right now is that all those factors are relevant and that generally speaking, a lot of stimulation seems to be good. So a lot of access to various sources of input, visually, kinesthetically, touch, sound, things that are gentle and things that are accessible are generally good. Now, obviously, like, don't do something crazy or dangerous because we said stimulation is good. Just <laughs> some some amount of exposure. Um, and most people do this. Like this, the the honestly, the infant gets this from just living your life day to day. So as long as you're living, the baby's probably doing okay. I really want to avoid sounding like we're trying to give advice. We're really not. We're I'm I'm really just trying to say that like we understand these factors are relevant and that they're part of the devel developmental history. I want to be very clear. I'm putting no responsibility on on the woman or on being a woman or on being a mother in terms of these things. It there, I think understanding the factors that result in a in a person who is having a child engaging in those behaviors is a totally interesting topic in and of itself and is not what we're after today. And it's relevant to understanding why people do the things that they do, which is what our podcast is about. And <laughs> and not to comment on responsibility or on motherhood or on on anything res related to that. Yeah, just okay. be behavior is cool. And that's yes. what we like to talk about. Exactly. That's a great way of saying it. Behavior is cool. <laughs> <We like> it. <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting things to cover in the actual birth process, but we're going to actually end it right here for now. But we do have some take homes and a correction to make as well from a previous episode. Right. All right, let's do Burn through these take-homes fairly quickly. I think one thing I would recommend if you are wanting to walk away from this episode with anything, it's that there are, you can summarize this as that there are generally three major phases during pregnancy. You can talk about the first, second, and third trimester. You can also talk about them as the germinal period, the embryonic period, and the fetal period. And that's sort of a general way of categorizing stages that tend to occur during development. And if we go back to that, uh, those factors we were talking about, it's around 70% of pregnancies that are naturally terminated at some point in the progress, which is just mind-blowing still. Yeah, and that just has to do with the fa the things just didn't align quite right for that to happen. This is not 
you did something wrong or you're bad or anything like that, just most of the time, for almost every single one of these cases, it was just that there was some abnormality or things just didn't quite line up the way they needed to, and that's just a thing that happens. So, And then the process of controlling the sex of your baby, like that's not something that we can even do. Yeah, there's mind. a lot of people who have these like these strategies for like to keep it warm or only eat this food or only do this exercise and that will result in in the in the sex of your baby. Nope, your chromosomes make that determination. You don't. And there's really <laughs> in my opinion no point in trying to control for that because we need a pretty even split of uh, of different sexes on the planet uh, if we want our species to continue and really whatever people are going to be they're going to be and they should be able to do whatever. Dig. Now, all right, to summarize, until around the third trimester, the baby's very generic. Um, that is, like, there isn't really this formation of the major characteristics. Yeah, there's not a lot of detail yet. Yeah, you start to form those more identifiable features in that third trimester. And um, if the baby does survive, then there are, of course, those into that final trimester, and you've got that, that fetal stage, um, there are a lot of things that can still happen that can affect it. There's those uh, teratogens we talked about. And then, of course, the benafogens, the things that can help it. So uh, the, the three we mentioned were chemicals, illness, and physical damage. All right. I think that's it. Perfect. All right. Quick correction? Yes, correction. Sweet. So somebody wrote in. Go ahead and handle this one. Uh, we actually got a few people uh, who gave us some feedback on the homeopathy episode that we released on homeopathy and mental health. And um, and some people had some really useful contributions to make to just really clarify some uh, some things inside of the episode. So one was that there is a we didn't really distinguish between homeopathy and phytotherapy. And phytotherapy has to do with, this is a science-based medicine looking at the use of things like naturally occurring chemicals in the world and how those can be used medicinally. I mean, it's just really easy to mix those things up. And so um, just to make sure that we were clear that homeopathy is different from phytotherapy, which is also different from naturopathy. We also really did not discuss evidence-based options for the treatment of mental health disorders. That kind of wasn't necessarily the purpose of that episode, but this, um, the, as the, our, the people who listened in pointed out, it is useful to say that rather than just this is something not to do, the things that one would generally recommend are behavioral interventions, pharmaceutical interventions, um, CBT, ACT, things that you have evidence bases of how to treat those things and not just don't do this, but here are things you could do instead. And then we also spoke a little bit about the idea that homeopathy isn't effective. And then we talked about it as a placebo. And what would be more accurate to say is that it, it is effective in the real life setting as a placebo. So it's not that it's not effective. It's as effective as a placebo, which can be effective, right? It's just that when we talk about efficacy and effectiveness and we're talking about um, the effectiveness refers to those drugs that actually work. Um, those are These are demonstrated in very controlled clinical trial settings in comparison to a placebo that actually perform a very specific function as opposed to the placebo effect of some amount of effect. Okay, And so uh, there are some drugs that could be somewhat efficacious in a clinical trial but are not necessarily effective when applied to a normal population. So just uh, a good piece of clarification that I was, I was speaking a little too off the cuff about this idea that um, that homeopathy was just not effective. It's, again, uh, as effective as a placebo. Okay? Cool. All right. 
And then one last thing that was uh, written in to clarify on this is that we talked about this idea that homeopathy came from Western medicine, which it did. And at the time, Western medicine was this like hodgepodge of you don't even know what you're going to get. Just because it was Western medicine at the time does not mean that it was science evidence-based. If you went to go see a doctor, you don't know if you were getting someone who was committed to like learning about and using the best methods for treating someone and someone who is just going to get you even more sick. There were not standards of care. There were not, um, there was not a, a lot of manualized treatment or specific science training that occurred. And you did not necessarily have to have any real credentials to call yourself a doctor. And so, um, and, and these things weren't rigorously tested. So although we did say that this came from Western medicine, it would have been useful to just clarify that Western medicine at that time was not like a, a standard that did not represent a high standard of care. Yeah. It was just the wild West. It really was. People so. sawing people's limbs off, not understanding what they're doing, trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> That's just crazy, dude. <laughs> and then we did have one person write in also about the homeopathy episode on, uh, left us a, a comment on Facebook. This was Joshua McCanninch. Is that how you think you say that? Yeah. McCanninch. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's yeah. uh New, New so Zealand based. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, he wrote in, he said, I vaguely remember something about the idea of the case study and taking patient histories coming from homeopathy. Um, also, that dilution came about because they quickly found that, quote unquote, medicine that brought about the same symptoms and the, as the illness tended to worsen the condition. The more it's diluted, the less the worsening. So the stronger the potency. Science. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, that was a great comment. I really enjoyed it. So uh, thank you for writing in with that. Joshua, uh, reading his comments makes my day almost any day. If I'm down in the dumps, I go digging around, finding something that he's written somewhere. That's great. <laughs> he's a funny dude, man. I love it. Though I, yeah. I, that, was, that was a great comment. So thanks for that. Yeah, he's so knowledgeable and smart. What's up, Joshua? I hope you're listening to this. <laughs> Shout out, Joshua. All right, cool. I think that's it. Sick. All right. Cool. Thanks for listening in. <laughs> what a weird sign off. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> this is uh, just all right. Bye. <laughs> All right. Um, but for I real. guess I guess that's it. Thanks for listening. This is Abraham and Rhino. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.